So good to welcome you to Providence. My name's Jacob. I'm one of the pastors here, and we have just sung our praise to God uh, in these lyrics. You've heard us uh, giving thanks that Jesus is alive, that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is resurrected from the grave, which means everything for our life. But today, I want to tell you about some things that come before Jesus being resurrected. Uh, I want to talk to you about some things that come before that last verse of the song that where we said, uh, Jesus is coming back one day. I, I'm looking forward to that, by the way. <laughs> um, but I have some things to tell you about the story of Jesus that come before us having that hope, that come before us even knowing that Jesus didn't just die on the cross and was left there. We've been in a study this year, the book of John, and we have come to John chapter 18. We're in our last few weeks of a, of a year-long study. And what we're going to talk about today is uh, some things that you have to understand to get the best part of the story in your mind and your heart. So there's a part of every great story that you don't like. This is a big introduction to me telling you a bunch of things that we're not going to like, Okay. There's, there's a part of every great story where there's some things that are not great. In fact, for a story to be truly great, there has to be some things that are not great. So, for instance, um, picture it's um, the fourth quarter. It's 42-42. And we just know something bad is going to happen. And our hero puts the ball down onto the ground at the 15-yard line, and this enemy comes <laughs> and scoops and scores. And I, this is a great day, isn't it? This is a great day. And so um, <laughs> I had some of, our, uh, some of our Alabama fans, for which we are, have many, that come to this church text me last night and they said, Jacob, will you just go easy on us today? <laughs> and I, I started thinking about it. I was like, this is the first time that this church is 14 years old. This is the first time we've ever had a third Sunday where we could do this. So my response to the Alabama fans was, no, this is, this is our moment. Joy, I'm looking at you. But yeah, oh, yeah, I asked for that. So, but every, um, the reason there's such jubilation for some of us today is because of what we endured, right? Every story has a moment when it feels like hope is lost. For there to be a great story, there has to be great heartache. So if you and I are going to live a great story, if we're going to live a great life, which we would all hope to do, there will be some parts of our story that are not great. And if you're in something right now, uh, all joking aside, if you're in something right now that is clearly not great, what I'm trying to share with you is that you're actually at the place with the greatest potential for possible power you've ever known. And that sounds like something, you know, a preacher guy would get up and say, but I'm going to share with you something today that I believe lifts us up out of those moments in our story where we think all hope is lost and shows us that it's actually the pain that we're in 
that is going to lead us to the greatest moments of our lives. And so the next few weeks, I'm going to tell you some of the hardest things that a Bible teacher or a Christian pastor can share. It's going to be hard to say and hard to listen, even some things this morning. I'm going to tell you about the betrayal, the denial, the arrest, the conviction, the beating, the crucifixion, and the abandonment of Jesus the Christ. And we might think, so why not just skip over it? Couldn't that just be all we say, right? We kind of get the picture. And if you think about it, it's what we do a lot of times. What churches do a lot of times is we head up to Easter. We do the Sunday before Easter, which is called Palm Sunday. It's an amazing day where people said, Jesus is the king. It's like Jesus gets his final due, so that's the Sunday before. And then most of us, you know, the next time we gather is the next Sunday, and Jesus is suddenly walking around, risen from the grave. And it's awesome. Like, Easter's my my favorite day. But but to, to share why we won't skip over it now, uh, the best way I can know how to share it that I think everyone would understand, the re- it's the same reason that when your child is sick or your loved one is dying that you won't leave their side. That's why we're not going to skip it today. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my middle daughter Lydia had a surgery for uh, a possible heart condition. It was not a major surgery, but um, you can probably guess where Rachel and I were that day, right by her side, every moment that we could. And then there was this moment we couldn't when they took her back for surgery. And so we went down to the lobby of Vanderbilt Children's and pretended to eat breakfast. And I remember one of our church members came and tapped me on the shoulder um, and and said, "Uh, Pastor Jacob, is that that you? And I was like, yeah. And I just want to say, I don't even remember who that was if you're here today. I asked Rachel, do you remember who that was? She's like, I don't remember. Because all we could think about was the one that we love. And, and so this won't be easy, but it's kind of what we have to do. You know, when there's hard and difficult things, we stay. Why do we stay? Love makes us stay, right? And so if you love Jesus, you need to go deep into these scriptures today with me. If you love him, you need to walk through what he walked through. If you're like, I'm new to Jesus, I'm new to the church, I don't know if I'd say I love Jesus, that's, that's cool. I mean, this is a place we're hoping that, that, that anybody could come at any stage of faith. But I want to invite you to also go through this part of the story to get to the fullness of what this is even all about. And so I'm inviting you to John chapter 18 to not leave the side of Jesus. So here we are. John 18 verse 1 says after or when he had finished praying. So last week if you're with us we heard this last prayer of Jesus. The last several weeks we've been in this final discourse of Jesus on the night before he was betrayed. And so we heard Jesus prayer for his disciples, for those of us who would come later, for those who would believe and also sort of for the unity of the church and believers. And when Jesus had finished praying, he left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. This is what is called the garden of Gethsemane. The next verse says that Judas who betrayed him knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, who was one of Jesus' disciples, he knew of this spot. He was one of Jesus' friends. And Judas is coming uh, with a raiding party. This is what it says. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priest and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. 
Judas, Jesus' friend, Judas, one of the 12, comes with a raiding party of torches and weapons to arrest Jesus. Now begin to picture this. Jesus is not a military leader. He's not someone running for office. He's a rabbi who's been teaching in a different kind of way, gaining attention. Some say miracles have been worked. But now there is this group of folks, uh, detachment of governmental royal soldiers, some officials, and also the leaders of the church that are coming to arrest him. This is the moment where Jesus is now betrayed. I have a few words that I want us to focus in on this morning. Uh, Again, they're not fun words, but please hang with me. Uh, The first is betrayal. And in this instance, betrayal is a misunderstood ambition. Judas had something burning in him. If you read the story like we have, most mentions of Judas, you can tell something's going on inside of Judas. He wants to be more. He wants notoriety. He wants more money. He feels underappreciated, definitely underpaid. He had an ambition for something else, something more, but the ambition in Judas was misunderstood. He did not let the the drive in him drive him in the right direction. He didn't understand what was actually happening inside of him, and so he let it push him in a place that he should not have gone. And the root of betrayal is often an ambition like that, to get something more, and you want the something more so bad, it leads you to do something that you would never do outside of the ambition. We become willing to turn someone over, someone who trusts us, to turn them over to something that will hurt them, something that helps us and hurts them. That's betrayal. There's a trust relationship. It's broken. You think it will help you, and you you realize it will probably hurt them. It would have been much better for Judas to just have remained a provided-for disciple under the authority of Jesus in the disciples' community. Um, It would have been better for him to do that than to have stepped out of that into what he thought would be riches that led him outside of community and outside of authority. I'll say that again. It would have been better for Judas to stay as a provided disciple under the authority of Jesus than it would be for him to chase these riches that pulled him outside of the community. And the thing is, guys, we do this all the time. What Judas does, he chose isolation and riches over community and provision. Because even though there can be riches in community, in community uh, there is sacrifice, there is serving others, there's connection. And Judas is kind of like, I want something more of my own, something more that's just mine, something that no one else can touch. And so that, that kind of drive creates an isolation where you're actually no longer provided for by others. Well, in the story, Peter will have none of this situation. So we're going to another character. Peter, Jesus' right-hand guy, he sees the folks coming with swords. He sees the torches. He knows something bad is up. And Peter's first inclination is to put his hand on his sword. It says, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. This is strange, right? This is crazy. One of Jesus' disciples goes, uh, I only have like 80s and 90s reference. He goes, Mike Tyson on this guy and the ear, he goes to the ear. 
He goes to the, it's weird, right? Like what's happening? He has the sword. It's some random guy that we now know is just a servant of one of the soldiers. His name was Malchus. He goes to the, the ear. And so now this scene, we have a rabbi who's being taken over by a raiding party of soldiers with lanterns and swords. And one of the rabbi's disciples, so just like a, I don't, you know, just a guy who's like learning to be a religious teacher is now got an ear on the ground in front of all of them. And, and Jesus is like, oh, how did, we, how did we get here, right? So Jesus says to Peter, put your sword away, man. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So what Jesus is showing us with that question, shall I not drink the cup the Father has, has given me, what he's saying is, no, Peter, there's a much bigger story going on that you can't see. Yes, this is bad. This is terrible. None of us would have wanted this. But by cutting off the ear, Peter's trying to take the story into his own hands. But Jesus sees the whole thing. We don't, we don't ever see the whole thing. So it's not like you know, uh, that we can, we can necessarily get there. But he's saying, I get it all. I'm going to drink what the Father has given me. I'm going, to, um, I'm going to take this moment in the story because of my belief, Jesus says, of what God is actually working in the bigger story. So with an ear on the ground, Jesus says to his guys, no swords, and we have to face the violence of this moment, okay? The violence of this moment. Violence is misplaced anger. Peter's feeling something very appropriate. I don't want you to mishear me. His master's cornered. He knows where this is headed. They've come with swords. He has a sword. He feels the anger that you feel when someone you love is going to be harmed. And that anger, here's where it gets off. That anger goes to the ear of a random dude. That's violence, when violence happens in our society, we question, why did that happen to them? What does that have to do with them? Why should that, that vulnerable person been hurt? Why was that whole group of people taken out? It's because anger was misplaced and put in a random kind of place, and that is violence. Jesus does not approve. The next verse says, then the detachment, we're just going to walk through the story, okay? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials, arrested Jesus. After the ear was cut off, they bound him. The next verse says they bound Jesus. They tied him up and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. So Jesus has come to stand trial before the religious authorities. He has multiple trials he's going to stand. The first is before sort of like his people, his, his church, his, his leaders. The other disciples sort of sulk, uh, skirt around in the darkness, following the raiding party to this place where Jesus is standing trial. We know that some of them were standing outside in the shadows. We know that Peter was standing in a place where he could see Jesus standing trial in this moment. Peter is warming himself. There's a gathering of people. This is a, kind of a, a crazy thing that's happening in the middle of the night and other people are gathered around. They've got a fire going, a charcoal fire. The scripture says Peter's warming his hands over the fire, but he's, he's in the crew. He's in the, in the group of people and, and somebody identifies Peter as they're watching Jesus on trial. So, uh, a lady says to him, aren't you, hey, wait a second, aren't you one of his guys? Aren't you the guy who cut off the ear of the servant? And Peter says, I am not. 
not that guy. Uh, it's an interesting exchange if you, if you go back and look at it in John chapter 18 that uh, multiple times people say, well, you sure do look like that guy. They say, you look like you're from Galilee. You look like a Galilean. You look like one of the fishermen guys. You look, you look exactly like the dude who's always with Jesus. Are you that guy? And he says for a second time, I'm not the guy. They're warming their hands. They're watching Jesus. He's tied up. He's on trial. They're questioning him. Uh, they're ridiculing him. Peter's still outside looking. A third time, they're like, dude, like for real, you, you, look, like, you look like Jesus disciple. And one of the scriptures says that Peter calls down a curse. So you can imagine uh, what it sounds like when someone says a curse and then says no, right? Not that guy. And in that moment, Peter, Jesus' friend, denies him. Denial. Denial is misguided fear. And most denials, uh, denials of things that are actually true, right? So if you're denying something that's true, most of that comes from a misguided fear. Uh, a way of thinking about this is, some of us can relate, is when you've had it, one of your, your children or a younger a person has done something, you know they've done it, right? Right, Barry? You know they've done it, but they're saying they didn't do it. And so it's, it's kind of a conundrum because you're like, in, a, in your head as a parent, you're like, I know they did it. But they're saying they didn't do it. We have a fun story in our family when our youngest daughter, Phoebe, was really small, like two or three years old. She got in this uh, stage. She was riding on her, on her arm with markers and her legs and her face. And that's cool for a while, you know. But at some point, as a parent, you kind of got to say, okay, okay, no more riding on. We just went with the face. We didn't even, like the body's, it's wide open, Phoebe. We're like, you, no more riding on, your, riding on your face with the marker, right? So that was a known kind of thing. Well, I came upon Phoebe uh, one time and she, after I'd said that, and I actually videoed it, which is probably bad parenting. But anyways, I walked up and she's got marker all over her, all over her arms, all over her legs, all over her face, right? And so I asked her, I said, Phoebe, did you ride on your face with the marker? Now she's holding a marker. <laughs> it's the same color ink as the marker on her face. I'm feeling like real high probability that she did it. So I said, Phoebe, did you write on your face with a marker? She looks me right in the eyes. She said, no, I did not. It's <laughs> like, whoa, well, why would Phoebe say that? She was afraid. She's afraid of whatever, you know, what the punishment or whatever, um, whatever she thought was coming. She feared something would happen to her. Peter was a great dude. Peter was ready to go to battle for Jesus, sword in hand. But when he saw Jesus standing trial, what he was thinking was, I'm next. He's his right-hand guy. So Peter's thinking, if Jesus is standing trial, I'm standing trial. And so they asked him, aren't you one of his friends? He says, no, I am not. He was afraid, right? But what Peter didn't understand, the reason I call it misguided fear, is because what people, Peter didn't even understand about his own heart is that ultimately he would have much rather been a guy who stood by Jesus in trial than he would to be known as the guy who said, I don't know him three times. So why would he do that? He was afraid. And that's the reasons oftentimes we'll deny something that's true. And looking back on it, it would be like, man, I, mean, I know, Pe I mean, we've studied Peter for years and years, right? I know 
Peter would have loved to have been known as the guy who got tied up and bound next to Jesus, went to trial with him, and went to the cross. That's Peter. When Peter dies later on after he shared the gospel all over, you know, pretty much the known world, they said they were going to crucify him the way they crucified Jesus. And Peter said, do not, do not kill me the way my Lord was killed. And he made them turn the cross upside down for his death. That's the kind of dude Peter was. But in that moment, we understand it, right? He had this misguided fear that says, I don't want to be in that situation. So Peter denies for a third time. And then the Jewish leaders, verse 28, took Jesus from Caiaphas to the place of the Roman governor. The Roman governor's name is Pilate. He's really the one that has the power uh, to do anything in the situation. So Pilate, verse 29 came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? What's the deal? And they say, if he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate's like, I'm a judge. I have to execute justice here. You know, this is not enough. We, he's a criminal. We wouldn't have handed him over to you if, if, if he weren't, right? And so Pilate from the get-go is like, uh, he, he's like no way to this request. They're making a crazy request, and that is that Jesus would be executed, <laughs> executed. And Pilate's like, no way. He says, I find no basis against him. Pilate is the one who holds the authority to set him free or to send him to execution. That's the authority given to him as the Roman governor. They request execution. And Pilate says, I find no basis, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. So Pilate is making a political move in this moment. Yeah, he thinks the people are way off base, but that's his, that's his, you know, those are his folks. Those are the folks who he is over. That's the folks who, you know, he has to keep happy. And so he says, hey, remember guys, every year at the Passover, it's the Passover. I give up one of your prisoners back to you. I pardon them. I give them back. So he says, how about, how about Jesus? Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And um, their, their response is surprising. They shout back at him, no, not him, give us Barabbas. So what's happening here is they, they mentioned some random guy who had started an uprising, a revolt, maybe even a murderer, we think. And they're just like, give us Barabbas, we don't want Jesus back. So Pilate takes Jesus and flogs him, has him flogged. He is not uh, he has not sentenced him to execution. What he's trying to do here is appease the people, you know, sort of satiate the electorate, right? Let's just do something. They don't like Jesus. They're mad. This killing him thing is crazy, but we'll beat him up. And so this scene that some of you may have heard of happens in this moment before Jesus has been executed to death. They flog him. They beat him. The soldiers then twist together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They're mocking him as a king. They clothe him in a purple robe, which was the color of royalty, majesty. So Jesus has this thorn uh, crown piercing his brow. He's being ridiculed with this purple robe as he's being beaten. And they walk up to him again and again and say, hail the king of the Jews. Hail the king of the Jews. They slap him in the face. Pilate still says almost, to, he's like, I'm not going to kill this guy, you crazy people. You know, he is, he's a... Um, He's supposed to execute justice, not rabbis, right? It's weird. But they're just shouting. They won't have anything. They're shouting at Pilate, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate says, you take him and crucify him. That would be as legal as me crucifying him. You take him and crucify him. But the scripture says they just keep shouting and shouting and shouting, take him away, take him away. Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And the people respond, we have no king but Caesar. 
And then notice the word in, in chapter 19, verse 16, it says, finally, finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. This uh, last word I want to share with you is not one we use often, but it's, I think it's important. I want to unpack it a bit. And the word is abdication. To abdicate something is just to renounce. It's to say, like, I'm not, take, I'm, I'm take, I'm not taking on something that is rightfully mine. Um, a, way, a more common way to understand if someone abdicates something is that they have failed to fulfill a responsibility. Abdication is failing to fulfill a responsibility. Pilate alone had been given the authority to execute justice and execute people. But he abdicated that and gave it to the mob. He gave it away. And so abdication is a misuse of power. And it's not just judges that have power, okay? We all have power. And I think that abdication, the reason I'm bringing it up today, I think it is like the marking sin of this age. That when people look back, um, parents abdicate the responsibility they have over their children. They give it away. It's, it's something that's, that's our responsibility. And we give it away. We give it away to culture or we give it away to social media or we give it away to the friend group and because, because, it, because we're exhausted. Pastors, I, I think we have abdicated too much of our responsibility. The responsibility that a pastor has to share the truth to teach the gospel. We give it away. We let somebody else say what the truth is. We let someone else say what good news is. Elected officials abdicate their power. Why? Why does a pastor abdicate his responsibility? Why does, why does an elected official? Because the mob is still so loud. And so it's a lot to take on. And so what we end up doing is trying to wash our hands of what's been given to us and we give it away and that creates a disaster. All right. I told you this one to be that fun, right? Your, your faces are like, I hate church today, but it's okay. <laughs> Ambition is good. Okay. The feeling that you're supposed to do something that you were made for something more. I hope that every one of you has an ambition, a drive, push. I got to do more. I got to be in a different spot, right? But when we misunderstand the drive in us and start hurting people because we have to be in the place where we're getting all the riches, that's sin. Anger is good. The Bible does not say that anger is a sin. It says, in your anger, do not sin. And so we see all kinds of righteous people who have anger to act, anger to stand up, anger to help others, anger to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. But misplaced anger cuts off random ears. Okay? So violence happens when we're so angry, but we don't, we don't let, it, let it push us towards God, but push us towards um, actions that hurt other people. Fear is good. It's a protection. It keeps us safe. But misguided fear leads us to deny things that later we say, why didn't I deny that? I, my whole life I would have wanted to say I'd be the person that stands next to Jesus. Well, we were afraid. People get afraid. And power is good. Every person in this room has power. Okay? Um, 
You may think I'm powerless. You're not. If you're in a relationship with people, we all hold power in different ways. Power gets mixed up and messed up for sure, but all of us have it. And a misuse, a failure to fulfill the responsibilities we have been given leads to the disasters in our lives. This story, Jesus' story, is a story of betrayers, violent offenders, deniers, and abdicators of power. And these betrayers, offenders, deniers, and people who gave up what they should have held on to are so important. This is the hinge, okay? There's a movement. Those, we're looking at them like, whoa, man, how, why did they do that? How did they do that? Why do we do this? How do we do that? They are so important that an arrested beat up savior goes all the way to Mount Calvary to make a way for them, or should I say us, right? We're reading this story like, what a mess, what, what brokenness, what pain. And the whole story is the one who's now carrying his own cross is not going to stop until they have a better story. This is, a, this is a redemption story. It's filled like your life is with not so great things. But here's the thing, guys. The not so great things have a purpose. The cross has a purpose. Even this, the crucifixion is on purpose. Uh, y'all may, you may have heard um, this verse shared in the church a lot. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Chapter 18 proves it. Look, who, look who's the center in the story. The scoundrel. We all would have expected Judas, right? But Peter and some elected official who's trying to do his job well. All. It's usually followed up with this verse. For the wages of sin is death which just means sin earns death, little deaths, big deaths. The, the, the times that we deny, betray, abdicate, are violent, it, hurt, it hurts people. And so we think the story is over, but it is not. Because these verses are leading to verses like this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Would you say that with me? Say it slowly with me. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ dies while we are sinners, not after. Not once we've got it figured out. Not once we've got our life cleaned up. Not once we've got it the way everybody says that we should, should be living. But literally during the betraying and the offending and the denying and not doing our part, he dies for us while we are dying. Why? Because he's going to stay right next to us in our hardest parts. Jesus does the hardest thing in our hardest moments, to demonstrate love. The whole thing, 
the beating, the flogging, the being turned over, the put away your swords, the standing there while Peter is, de- is denying, all of that, Jesus going to the cross, the nails in his hands, the blood, the spear in his side, the abandonment, him saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's all a demonstration of his love for humanity. Because what happens sometimes is we just get the first parts of these verses. I want to show you the, the whole of these verses. So this one from Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You've probably heard that. It's not the whole verse. It says all have sinned and fall short and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. For the wages of sin is death. Let's look at that one. That's just the first phrase. (laughs) For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here, look, I know some of you have only been told in your life the bad part of the story. You only got one side of it. For the wages of sin is death. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's so true. But if that's all you hear, then you end up thinking you're bad. And your story's going to be bad. But that's not the gospel. The gospel has this other side that says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all are justified freely by his grace. But some of us have only heard the good part of the story. Right? And if you live your life and you've only heard the good part of the story, then there will come a moment when you will experience the brokenness and the pain and the suffering and the full extent of your own sin and your limitations where you won't even get to experience the fullness of the goodness because you don't know the badness of the badness. And so the gospel is that there's a big mess, but Jesus has made a way for us. And so we understand Those of us here, right, we understand, man, I know suffering. I know pain. I watched my loved one die. I can't get better from this illness. My my brother has betrayed me. We know these things that take us to the depth of the darkness of humanity. And Jesus is saying, I will walk through every part of that to get you to John chapter 20. We'll look at it in a couple weeks, okay? So just keep, keep coming back. You know, we might say, if we don't understand betrayal or if we don't understand denying or if we don't understand violence, then we can't understand the full power of what Jesus has done. But we do understand those things. I hear you talking about them all the time. The gospel is good news because we know the bad news. Liz Reese, who's our lay leader, a wonderful Christian woman in the church, she'll say to people, to understand my praise, you have to understand my pain. He's like, why are you, why'd you people come in here and just like raise the roof off this place by singing about Jesus? Because, oh, because we live in this world. I think all these wonderful verses in Romans lead up to this place in Romans chapter 8. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just hang on that one for a second, Jay. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. That's the cross. And so he condemns sin in the flesh. And it says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But listen, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. 
And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he will raise you up. He will raise you up. Love is what makes Jesus stay right through John chapter 18 and John chapter 19 because John chapter 20 is coming. And I just want you to hear today the good news of the gospel. And that is Jesus has done everything necessary to forgive you of your sin. You're forgiven once and for all. And so some of us, I think, probably are at a place where we need to forgive ourselves. I had this moment when I was young and I was kind of facing the full extent of my sin. I was having this conversation with God and I was like, you know, I was feeling the weight of that and the burden of it. And, and I said, God, I don't understand how you could forgive me. And I felt like God said in my spirit, I have forgiven you, now forgive yourself, right? A part of the good news is you stepping into the freedom that God has given you uh, to live. Let me say a prayer for us. God, would you let the, um, this story sink into our bones a little bit today to think about what Jesus went through on our account, that he loves us so much. Would you let full forgiveness and grace come and wash over us if we have carried any burdens of, of shame and guilt and sin in our lives? us to experience the full measure of how Jesus treated those who felt vulnerable or felt on the outside. Thank you for demonstrating your love to us and we receive it now. I pray for the, the folks here who need to say yes to Jesus just in your heart to confess Jesus as Lord. The Bible says if we confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. So as you know, God, I've been praying for that people could be saved out of something today, saved uh, from their sin, saved from something that's really been having them bound up. Just pray over you if that's you and you know you need to say yes to Jesus in this moment. Trust him. Trust him. Trust that he'll know what to do next with you. In Jesus' name, amen.